Wow. Uh, What we've just sung to him was that he gave his very best, he gave his all. And what that calls from us is that we give our all. I mean, that just, it, it's only logical. God gave his very best. He gave his son. He gave us all that he had, all that we would ever need for our salvation. And that calls from us our all. At the core of the gospel, and I don't know if you've noticed this morning, there's something different on the stage this morning. There's a large cross. And actually the youth used it on Wednesday night, and I knew where I was heading in my sermon. I said, oh, Byron, no, 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 we just want to leave the cross up there. Uh, At the essence, at the very core of the gospel message is this simple truth that Jesus died for our sins. I mean, if if there's only one part of the gospel you need to know, that's it. Jesus died for our sins. I was a sinner. I needed a Savior. I couldn't save myself. God intervenes in our world and in my circumstances, and He sends His Son to pay the penalty for my sin, for your sins, for the sins of all people of all time, that if I then surrender my life to Him, that His righteousness is bestowed upon me and I am put in a right standing with God. And, um, wow, don't you, didn't you appreciate Cody and Michelle's testimony this morning? If you just... If your wood's a little wet, just make an appointment. Say, can we feed you supper? And just visit with us about what God's doing in your life. And so, you know, we kind of do a seven-minute video, but there was a lot more to their story. Um, and really, it's, it's that point of saying, no, I'm going to give God my all. Uh, at the essence of the gospel, at the very core of the gospel, is this simple fact, truth. That Jesus died for our sins. I was a sinner. That Christ died for me. He was a substitute for me. That if I will surrender my life to him and accept that gift. And his righteousness. I will be put in a right standing with God. uh, For all of eternity. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. The writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And here's the phrase. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured 
the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You know, one of the things that I've talked about this before, I don't think we really grasp, it wasn't just that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus suffered for our sins. The cross is an excruciating death. It wasn't just that Jesus died. It was that Jesus suffered and he knew he was going to suffer. He was going to have to endure this time of the way in which he was put to death to die for our sins. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Part of the reason I leave the cross up here is because it's a visible something, and I'm kind of a visible, visual learner, I should say. Uh, and the picture I get is on the other side of that cross is joy. For the joy that was set before him, for the joy that would be on the other side of the cross, he endured the cross. On the other side of the cross is joy. The only way you can get to the joy is through the cross. It's on the other side. I got to thinking about this. What if Jesus, you know, remember when Jesus was facing the night before uh, the prospects of the cross and he knew it was coming and he, he, he takes his disciples and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus kneels and pray and he asks God if it is possible, if there is any other way for the redemption of mankind other than me to go through not just death but the suffering of the cross. Lord, take this cup from me. And he prays for several hours and the answer comes from the Father. There is no other way. Uh, Jesus knew what was coming. What if, what if in the midst of that garden, Jesus had said, you know what? I can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm not going to do it. What if Jesus then had said, God, I want you to fill my life with joy now. <laughs> Lord, I kind of just want to settle in in my comfortable life. And God, I expect and I, I want you and I pray that you would fill me with joy. Jesus is on this side of the cross, not willing to go to the cross. And the, visible up, the visual up here is, no, there's only joy on the other side of the cross. If Jesus had been disobedient to the Father... Could he have expected the Father to fill his life with joy? No. And what strikes me is the simple truth when we look at our verses that we're going to look at this morning. If there is no cost, there is no joy. No cost. No joy. If in our following Christ we simply do what is comfortable and is acceptable and even good in the eyes of men, but it never cost us anything, 
what I learned from the Scripture. These, we're looking at the book of Philippians. What is the secret to joy? And I'm telling you the truth that God shows me from the words of Paul. If there is no cost in our lives, if we never are willing to pay the price, there is no joy because joy is on the other side of the cross. So all through the book of Philippians, Paul uh, talks about 16 times he says rejoice or joy. Uh, that's, that's a good thing. But what we've said all these weeks in the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, is that his joy was in the midst of adverse circumstances. It's one thing in the midst of a life that everything is going well to say, oh, I found joy in that. That's not the case at all. Paul is in prison and he is facing death. Uh, the Philippians have taken a stand for Christ in their culture, but most of their culture was not on the same page as they were. They opposed them. The Philippians found themselves in the midst of a culture that was, advent was um, adversarial to their faith. It seemed like everybody else stood for something and was living a different life than they were living. Everyone, it seemed, was opposed to them. They were experiencing persecution and opposition. And in the midst of that, Paul is not only saying that he's experienced joy, but he wants to teach them how to experience joy. And that's what started me and, and us in this whole study in, in the letter to Philippians to try to discover what is it in Paul's life and what do we learn from his experience and what he's teaching us about joy. Uh, last week we passed through uh, some dark scriptures. Byron asked me this morning if it was going to be a little bit more happy-clappy. <clears throat> and I said, no, I'm sorry. I don't know if you've looked in the sanctuary. There's a big cross in there. <laughs> this is your first sign. Um, last week, Paul comes to one of those, what we would consider great verses in Philippians. Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you listen closely to what Paul says there and if you think about what we talked about last Sunday morning, uh, Paul has applied this truth about having to die to yourself, to himself. Notice he said, for to me. What Paul was saying in my life, I'm telling you, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This morning when we come to Philippians 1, 27 through 30, he turns a corner and what he has applied to himself, now he applies to the Philippians. I am having to die to myself. But you know what he's, what we, the place we came to, there is no joy apart from that death to self. In fact, um, that, that the depth of joy is determined. This is what we said last week. The, 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 the depth of joy is determined by our degree of death and if there is anything that we are not willing to die to or to lose for the sake of Christ, even our lives, I mean, that's the ultimate expression, then the world will always have leverage on us. Think about it. Even if we take it to the extreme of death, if the world said, no, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna live the way we want you to or we're going to put you to death, 
And when you can come to the place in your life and I can come to my place in my life that I am willing to lose whatever, even death, life itself, lose that, the world has no leverage on us because we say, if you kill me, for me it is gain to die. Uh, and Paul was there. I said last Sunday that I'm afraid that we sell ourselves way short of that. Quite honestly, I don't know if there's anybody in this room in all of our lives that we will ever come to the place where we will have the option to say, if you confess Christ, you will lose your life. I don't know. Maybe someone in this room has come to that place. I've never come to that place. I don't know that I will ever come to that place of that situation being presented to me to say, no, I'll have to put my life on the line. But I think the reality is, is we step away from that edge away and we sell ourselves way short, even to the point of being concerned about what people think about us. And we sell it out. We sell out our faith for far less than even physical death. Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain... And in Philippians 1, 27 and 30, he then applies that truth of death to self to lose it all for the gospel to the Philippians. And he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul is teaching the Philippians, not just for him, but for them. No cost, no joy. Because the, the joy will always come on the other side of the cross when we've paid a price, when we've taken a stand to say, no, the world is not going to tell me how to live regardless of what their response is to me, I will stand for Christ. I will stand my ground. Um, he says, really the first phrase is, is the point and is the power behind the whole message of all that he says. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. May your life be a reflection of what Christ has done for you. And as Christ took a stand and through the agony of the cross provided for the salvation of mankind, now as a follower of His, may you also take your stand and understand that you will also... What did Jesus say? If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.
that word conduct only let your conduct is an interesting word and uh, I know this morning's going to be a little bit of a Greek lesson I apologize ahead of time brother Cody next Sunday you're preaching you can make fun of me all you want I'll be in Africa okay yeah I know you will I know you're looking forward to that you've been storing up uh, but when Paul uses the word conduct, it is a word to, that means to live or the life of a citizen. It's actually the word that we would get political or politics from, uh, poly being uh, the Greek word for city, and so it was their civic life. Now, Paul typically, in this case, would have used a Greek word that means would have said your walk, your conduct, your way of life. But he doesn't say, let your way of life uh, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, let your... Um, uh, transliteration would say, let your politics, let your civic life, let, let the way you operate as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's a reason Paul uses that word and not the word for walk. Because Philippi, as we said in maybe the first sermon, Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, you've got to get this. Uh, Philippi is little Rome. Uh, Rome is hundreds of miles away. But the Romans, who had conquered that part of the ancient world, established a little Rome, a colony in Philippi. They dressed like the Romans. They organized their government like the Romans. They used the, the Roman language, which would have been Latin. They, they dressed, they ate, they spoke. They were like a little Rome. If you've traveled in the world, um, I mean, you, I mean, I've been to New York City. There's Little Italy. You go down there, it's Little Italy. You know, we've been to San Francisco. She wouldn't let me take her to Chinatown, but there's a little Chinatown in San Francisco. She, no, no, I don't know what that is that they're cooking. I'm not going to eat that, Daryl. Okay, we're going to the pizza place. Let's find the Little Italy. Uh, a year ago, we went to West Philadelphia. There's a little West Africa. It's almost funny to us who have been to Africa and to walk the streets along Woodland Avenue in West Philadelphia. Born and raised, all that, you know. By the way, I did see Will Smith in New York City, but he wasn't in West Philadelphia. But anyhow, you know, he went to L.A. and then he was in New York City. But anyhow, um, I digress. Uh, but it's funny, we could walk the streets of Woodland Avenue in West Philadelphia, and it's little West Africa. They spoke the language. Uh, cricket, we went in those little convenience stores, and they're selling the same stuff they sell in the market in Bela, beginning. You know, the women are dressed that way. The men are sitting outside on something, and they're drinking tea. And it's just, it's... Philippi was little Rome. And uh, Paul uses this term... And it's kind of uh, an implicit message. He doesn't say just your way of life. He says, let your life as a citizen. You know what he was saying? He says it later in, in Philippians 3.20. He says, our, for our citizenship is in heaven. When Paul begins to talk about their conduct, he says, you don't belong here. This is not your home. You have been colonized where you are as a Christian and you've been placed on earth. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven and you are to reflect that in the way that you live, the way you talk, the way you eat, 
all of those things. You are to live out that culture from the place that you are a home, that is your ultimate home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Let your citizenship, the way you conduct yourself, realize where you are from. So all of that is behind that word. It's very interesting and it's intentional by Paul. Let your conduct be worthy. There is something very powerful that Paul is speaking to the Philippians about. Paul has talked about, I put my life on the line. And Paul is about to say to them, it's only appropriate that you do the same. If your opposition and persecution comes your way, you know that I have put my life on the line, that your Savior gave his life. Let your life as a citizen be worthy. Do not be ashamed to the name. When you are put to the place where they will say, well, we will put you to death if you confess Christ. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. What is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins? Let your conduct be worthy. You have to live in the light of the cross that Jesus died for your life. Your leaders, like the Apostle Paul, is facing death and ultimately would give his life for the gospel. Sometimes we act like God wants us to be good people. It is not enough, Christians, for, for us to be good people. Because good people many times is code language for we're going to fit in real well with our society and have a great reputation among those that we walk with that are not don't even believe like we do. God did not call us to be good. He called us to be godly. And we live in a godless society and ultimately our values and their values is different culture. The Philippians would have stuck to their Roman culture tooth and nail. They weren't going to let anybody come in and change the way they lived. They were little Rome. And Paul is saying, you need to live in line with your Savior who died for you. And when the world opposes you, as it opposed him, you take your stand. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast. That word stand fast is a word that is used in ancient literature to refer to a soldier who stood his ground in the midst of battle. Did not, when the enemy came, did not give up ground. I am standing my ground. I will either die here. Or I will live, but I will not go backwards. I am standing here. They can kill me, but I'm not retreating. I am standing my ground. And that's what this word is. And Paul is painting this picture. He doesn't have to paint much of a picture because the Philippians are, are living it. I'm painting the picture for you today to understand. They knew what Paul was talking about. You're going to have to stand your ground because the world opposes you. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He uses some terms that speak about unity, uh, one spirit, one mind, striving together. Mm, it's coming, not this Sunday. He's going to talk about unity later. But he's talking about teamwork here. Actually, the word there, to strive together, is a word that we get our word for athletics from. 
And so it means to compete in an athletic competition, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. That word terrified is a word that was used in ancient literature to speak of of a horse that had been terrified or had been spooked. Um, I would like the word to communicate this. Do not be intimidated by your adversaries. Now, the word adversaries is a word that means uh, those who have positioned themselves against you that are opposed to you. And it's talking about the enemies. And so there's an athletic imagery here. There's a military battle uh, imagery. But Paul says, Paul says, when they oppose you, that not in any way that you would be terrified by those who oppose you. You will live in a culture in which people will oppose you. Do not be intimidated. Do not be, in, do not be terrified. Do not give up ground. But stand fast, together, one spirit, one mind. He says, which is to them a proof of perdition. The word perdition is a word that means judgment or destruction. But to you of salvation and that from God. Oh my. I don't even understand this. I've never come to this place in my life. But Paul had. And he said, the day that you will stand and they will say, you must recant your faith. You must say that something else is your God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the day, and they said, if not, we'll kill you. And the day you can look him in the eye, you say, you kill me, but I will not recant. Jesus is my Lord. He said, when you take that stand that day, and you say, you do to me whatever you have to do, but this is where I'm standing. You can kill me here, but I'm not leaving here. He said, the day you do that, he said, it will, be, it will be a glaring statement of condemnation on them. They will think, what kind of person is this that will not recant what they believe and would be willing to give their lives? For them, it will be a statement of their judgment, of their condemnation that is coming. But for you, it will be of salvation, God's deliverance. When you have the courage to stand, even if the world were to say we would kill you, no, I will take my stand here. So he says in verse 29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Yes. Yes, it's been granted for you to believe. But you also have to know, dear Christians, that it's also been granted for you to suffer. There's no way around it. Our citizenship is in another place. We're not from here. We have different values. We have different laws. We have different way of life. We eat. We talk. We do all of these things. We dress. We d- d- we're different. And so we're going to come into conflict with the culture in which we live. We have been colonized. And just know that you will suffer for his sake. Finally, verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Hmm. 
the word conflict, conflict really brings us back to the cross where we started. It's literally the word that means agony. Uh, for the Greeks, the word agony was a word that uh, technically meant an athletic contest. It was a competition. It was an athletic competition. But through the struggle of that, got the connotation of agony, of struggle. And he says, having the same conflict, struggle, which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Paul says, you've seen it in me. It's kind of interesting because uh, if you read Acts 16, Paul comes to Philippi. He, founds, he finds a women's prayer meeting at the river. Lydia, the seller of purple, uh, is saved with her household. Uh, they come in, Paul comes and Silas come in conflict with the demon-possessed girl who is telling the fortunes for her slave owners. They deliver the demon from the girl and it upsets the slave owners. They're arrested. They're thrown in. They're beaten. And they're thrown in prison. The Philippians, Lydia and her household, if they were the only believers, they knew this happened if they did not see it with their own eyes. They beat Paul and Silas as they had been beaten Jesus before his death. And they throw him in prison. You remember the story at midnight. They're singing and praising God. <laughs> Paul teaches them about joy. He would lived it. He didn't know he was going to be writing this letter. He didn't know, he, oh, well, this is going to be a great life lesson for me to teach them about joy in the midst of suffering. Silas, Brother Silas, why don't we turn in our hymn books to number 375. Victory in Jesus. Let's sing all four verses. No, they had seen, they had heard. He said, You've seen this in me. And now you hear it is in me. Epaphroditus had been sent to them, is now taking this letter back. And Epaphroditus would have shared of Paul's imprisonment and his possible martyrdom days from that time. They've seen it in him in the past, they see it into him now. Yes, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul says, yes, I must die to myself. Philippians, you must die to yourselves. And you know what he's teaching them about joy? If there is no cost, there is no joy. If you don't pay the price, we are naive to think that we can resign ourselves to comfortable lives that do not ever find opposition with the culture in which we live and that somehow God would bless us and give us joy in the midst of that. It just, I'm telling you, Christians, it doesn't work that way. The only place of joy is on the other side of the cross. And if you don't ever take your stand, and it may never cost you your life, but if you don't ever take your stand wherever it is that we're asked to take a stand, you'll never experience the joy. If there is no cost, there is no joy. 
I love at the end of Luke's story in Acts 5. The apostles are arrested. God delivers them from prison. Ah, we love that part. They go back. And this is what Luke records in Acts 5.41. It's just a little phrase in the midst of verse 41. It says, rejoicing that they had been worthy to suffer for his name. Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for his name. If the early church, basically when the world had put pressure on them, had just kind of backed up and said, oh, no, hey, we... We don't want to cause any waves here. We're, no, we're just good people. Just going with the flow. There would have been a loss of power. And there would have been a loss of joy. Uh, each week, if it comes to me, I try to say, well, what is the joy killer here? What is it that steals our joy at this point? Uh, last week, if we don't die to something, that very something will be the thing that kills and steals and takes our joy this week it would be the one word compromise. One of the things that will steal our joy is compromise. When the world pushes, puts pressure on us and we've been called to stand and we back up, we give up ground. Let me tell you, once you ever give up ground, it's extremely hard to get it back. Oh, and I don't even have time to talk about politics this morning, but the church in America has given up so much ground. As a realist, I say we'll never get it back. Because years ago, we didn't stand our ground and said, No, you'll either kill me here, but I'm not leaving. I cannot concede this ground. And we gave it up, Christians in America. And we find ourselves in the place of compromise where we've lost our power and we've lost our joy. And we've tried to, con tried to, tried to concede ourselves to a life of comforts and we've asked God in the midst of that to bring us joy and peace. But the only place we find joy is on the other side of the cross. No cost, no joy. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, today we, um, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts. And that, Father, you would make us unsettled today and the days ahead for the lives of comfort that we have conceded ourselves to. And I pray that you would give us courage to stand our ground. And Father, I pray that our conduct would be worthy of the fact that Jesus died for our sins. And many people, like Paul, have stood their ground even to the point of death. Many people today stand their ground. Do a work in our lives we do not concede ourselves to live lives of half-hearted.